you know, I don't usually get super emotional. Uh, I, uh, never mind. I do get a little bit emotional, but uh, I just I got emotional this morning singing um, about the generations and our families and how the Lord is working the gospel and His kingdom uh, through the generations, through the discipleship of our children. And looking at all these babies on stage, these children, and just seeing the work of the Lord in, in them just touched me. And then I'm looking up here at the worship team and Leslie's here singing with her teenage daughter. And I'm like, look at the investment of the kingdom. Thank you, brother. Thank you very much. Uh, and that's what it's about. Let me tell you, moms, dads, the best investment you'll ever make is into your children. Disciple your children. Don't just teach them the Bible. Show them what love for Jesus looks like. Show them what it means to actually love the Jesus of the Bible. Hmm. Well, as we get back into the book of Acts, we're going to be in chapter 18 today. In uh, Acts chapter 18, if you'll find your place there in God's word, uh, the book of Acts is the story of the incredible resilience and exponential growth of the New Testament church. After Jesus died and was buried and resurrected from the dead, this is the beginnings of our history. What we do when we gather started right here in this book. So I want to connect those dots for you to help you. When you look back and you read back through these stories, don't disconnect as if it's a story that doesn't connect or relate to you. It does. It is the beginnings of what we're doing today. And what we've seen is that this book details the struggles and the successes of early followers of Christ. It shows the journey they walk on as they uh, as they follow Jesus, as they share the gospel, as they make disciples, as they plant churches, it, it shows the ups and the downs. And what we've seen is how the Lord uses what seems like failure. Like being imprisoned or beaten or killed. And he uses what seems like failure to advance his purposes. Probably the biggest gospel spreading event that we've seen through the book of Acts is the martyrdom of a guy named Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He was preaching a, a pungent message and was dragged out of the city and stoned to death. And as he's being killed, he looks up and sees Jesus standing and he says, Lord, forgive them. And that moment of martyrdom, the first of these early believers to be martyred, what they thought would squash this movement ultimately ended up being the biggest spreader event we've ever seen. They aimed to stop it, but they only spread it. And so what we see built into those type stories is this beautiful theological, theological truth that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. So today I want to unpack that truth for us because um, it is the central theme of this focus passage this morning. So what does it mean that God is sovereign? What does that mean that God is sovereign? Well, I want to give you a very simple definition that I hope you'll grab hold of this morning. Here's what the way I want us to talk about it. I want to frame it up like this. God is in complete control 
of all things at all times. God is in complete control of all things all the time. Some of us really need to lock on to why that's important. That matters when storms come into your life. Because rather than just throwing up your hands in a panic, you can say, Lord, I don't understand, but I know you do. I know you're in control. I want you to think about it. The sovereignty of God is painted. It's a portrait painted of our God throughout all of Scripture. I'm just going to run through a few stories among many. But when Joseph was thrown into a pit by his brothers and then ultimately sold into slavery, who was in control in that moment? That's right. You can answer. It's good. We're, we're all family. You can answer. What about when Joseph was falsely accused of rape and then thrown into prison by his boss? Who was in control then? Yeah. And at the end of Joseph's story, almost 18 years later, 18 years of suffering and hardship and pain, all initially begun by the betrayal of his closest people. The end of his story, after being promoted to second in command, he's reunited with his brothers and he offers them forgiveness ultimately. And he gives us a glimpse of his perspective on his sufferings. And that glimpse of his perspective is seen through the lens of God is sovereign. Here's what he says. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God is in complete control of all things all the time. How about Job? His story is one of brutal suffering. A man who honored God but lost everything. His house, his wife, his children, his wealth, even his health. And even his friends came to tell him how bad of a person he was. Was God in control then? Absolutely. When everyone else doubted it, Job says... I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job 42, 2. It's a beautiful expression, a beautiful praise of the reality that our God is in control of all things all the time. When King Nebuchadnezzar threw the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace, was God in control then? God himself walked with them through the fire. And not much later, that prideful king was taught a lesson in humility by the one true king. He was humbled to the point of uh, crawling around on his hands and knees and eating the grass like an ox. He lost his mind because our God is in control of all things. When he came to himself and his humility had worked the purpose for which God wrought it in his heart, that humble king looked to God And says this, he who does according to his will among the host of heaven and among all inhabitants of the earth, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Because our God is in control of all things all the time. How about the climactic moment of all the Bible, right? All the stories leading to one big climax. Jesus being crucified on the cross. What a terrible evil. 
Who was in control in that moment? None other than our God. When Herod and Pilate worked together to kill Jesus, who was, in, in, who was truly in charge of those moments? The, the earthly authorities or the one true authority? It was a God. In Acts 4, just this book, after Peter and John were released from prison their first time, they come back to the church and the church prays. And this is in their prayer. They said this, For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Listen, to do Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So listen to the truth of the way this early church held on to the reality of our God is sovereign in the midst of a moment of suffering. Their brothers had just been released from jail and they pray and say, Lord, even when Jesus was crucified, you were in charge. You were in control. These earthly leaders, they thought they had beat us, but they didn't. They thought they could stop your son, but they couldn't. They actually did your bidding. This is what it means to know and believe that our God is in control. Jesus himself talked about his own death so much. In John 10, one of my favorite passages, he says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And listen to this. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus is saying, I am sovereign. So when we read the stories in the book of Acts, we can't help but see the hand of God at work. It's not just the acts of men. It's the acts of our God through ordinary men. Now, why is that important? Because me and you, we're ordinary people. We're just regular old Joes. And we need an extraordinary sovereign God to work through us to accomplish his will. And that's what we posture ourselves humbly before him to say, Lord, would you please bring about your kingdom? So with all of that in mind, I want us to turn to our text in Acts chapter 18 and see how Jesus is Sovereign, Would you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read the first 23 verses of Acts 18? After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. 
And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of uh, questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila at Centrea, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he went, he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. But when they, when they asked him to stay for a, a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need to see you as our sovereign king today. We pray you would reveal yourself to us through your word, that we would be encouraged by what we see. Lord, if there be anyone here or listening who has yet to come to know Jesus as the one true God, the Savior of the world, I pray that you would do that in their heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've entitled this message, Jesus is Sovereign. So I want us to see five ways in the scripture that Jesus is in complete control. Now remember, God is sovereign means God is in complete control of all things at all times. So when we talk about Jesus being sovereign over all things at all times, we're going to see that in this text. And Certainly, there are many other things we could say about the scripture, but I want to give us five truths about the sovereignty of King Jesus. So first, he is sovereign over our partnerships. This is going to be in true like preacher form today. Every one of these is a P. All right. So brace yourself. Um, Jesus is sovereign over our partnerships. What I mean by that is friendships, relationships, but those didn't start with a P, so you got partnerships, okay? Um, some of the characters in this story, who, who are these personalities? We, we meet several characters through the story, and um, let's just walk through those. And what I want you to see with each one is how Jesus is in control of, of each of these People and the story, how they connect into the storyline of the gospel getting to the city of Corinth. 
So consider for a moment Aquila and Priscilla. A married couple, young married couple who, um, uh, Aquila's from Pontus, but they have recently come from Italy. Why did they come from Italy? Did anybody catch that? Because the leader of Rome kicked them out. They were exiled along with all the Jews. They had to leave Rome. Now, who was in control of that? Hmm. God is divinely placing people in a city where he's sending his messenger with his gospel so that they will give him a job and a house and companionship and partnership in a place he's never been and doesn't know anyone. So God works in such a way, he's so sovereign that he steers the heart of a leader of Rome to kick out all the Jews and for many reasons, but among them, Aquila and Priscilla leave and go to Corinth and they become the persons of peace that this missionary brother needed to begin his ministry. It just so happens, right? What I'm hoping to do is to keep you from the mistake of thinking that life is a series of coincidences. And I want you to begin to see and acknowledge the hand of a sovereign God in every moment of your life. So it just so happens that Aquila and Priscilla have been kicked out of Rome. They just so happened to come to Corinth. They just so happened to be tent makers. They just so happened to meet up with Paul, who also is a skilled tent maker. And they just so happened to be receptive to him, right? It's just coincidence. No, Jesus is sovereign. And then... After Paul has begun his ministry, he's been preaching, teaching in the synagogue, trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks to believe. But he's doing that on the Sabbath and he's working all week long. He's trying to pay the bills, trying to cover his expenses. He doesn't want to take money from anyone to be there. He wants to work. He he writes about that in the letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. He said, "I, I didn't want to ask anything from you. I just wanted to give you the gospel. So Silas and Timothy show up. Paul had started his gospel work, but he was, uh, like I said, distracted with working all week long. When Silas and Timothy show up, they are brothers in the faith. They are friends that are long lasting friendships. They've been with him on journeys and through hardship. And so this companionship is huge. But they also come with an offering from the church in Philippi. You can read about that in Philippians chapter four. Paul talks about the brothers that came from Macedonia and supplied his needs. And that's why we read in verse. um, Let's see. It says uh, when when Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, Paul was occupied or it says he's he's given completely to the preaching of the word. He transitioned from being a, a bivocational minister at that point to just being all in. Being able to go all in and and share the gospel every day and not have to do the tent making deal for a bit. Now, he went back and forth working and and not working, working and not working. There was such flexibility in the Apostle Paul. We admire him for that. But Silas and Timothy come to him because Jesus is sovereign. Then we have this introduction of this character, Titius Justice. He's also called Gaius in another book of the Bible, but... When the Jews rejected Paul in the synagogue, 
He went to, I'll call him TJ. He went to TJ's house, right? Right next door. Coincidence? No. <laughs> right next door to the synagogue, Paul has a, has a person who's a worshiper of God, right? He, he just needs some clarity, some discipleship. And he's like, hey, Paul, come here. You can, you can preach from my front porch right by the synagogue. So they ran him out. He went next door and started preaching again. <laughs> Coincidence? No. Then we are introduced to a man named Crispus. This guy was the ruler of the synagogue. So he's the Jewish leader over the synagogue at the time. And the Bible tells us that through Paul's preaching, he became a believer in Jesus. So the ruler of a synagogue that just ran Paul out has decided that what that man is saying is true. And so we have to believe that he abandons his post as ruler of the synagogue, steps down from all that responsibility and follows Paul and the teachings of Jesus. Crispus. Paul's ministry was fruitful. The head guy and his whole family become believers and are baptized. This is huge. Then we're later in the text introduced to a man named Galileo, and he's the newly appointed proconsul. So the opposition to Paul's message gets so strong that they, they decide they want to take the same route that they took with Jesus. They take Paul before their governing ruler and they, they say, hey, this guy's he's trying to cause problems and blah, blah, blah. And Galileo says, Mm, not going to fall for your political game. Y'all need to resolve that in-house. So uh, he's free to go. So let's just make sure we understand what's happening here. We have a non-believer who's newly appointed to his post. And God is using a lost government leader to give protection to his missionary. Coincidence? No. Then we're introduced at the very end of the story, poor Sosthenes, right? This guy, he's now the newly appointed ruler of the synagogue. Remember, Crispus stepped down, so we got Sosthenes who steps into the role of ruler of the synagogue. And at the end of the story, he's watching Paul suffering. He's watching the, the, the reviling and opposition of Paul. He's listening to the teachings of Paul. And we have to con, you know, conclude that he's some kind of sympathizer to the message, maybe even a believer at this point, because after Galileo throws out the case, they go grab Sosthenes, the new ruler of the synagogue, drag him out before the tribunal and beat him. They beat the new ruler of the synagogue. It's a tough position. Now, I love this. So just for fun, if you have your Bible, I want you to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Or maybe we can put it on the screen for you. And I just want to see, show you who is writing the letter back to the church in Corinthians from Ephesus. He's writing back to, Paul's writing back to them. But look at verse one. It's on the screen behind me here. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and who? Our brother Sosthenes. Isn't that wild? 
This brother, who was the newly appointed ruler of the synagogue, beaten before the tribunal, is now in Ephesus with Paul, writing the letter back to the new believers in Corinth. Coincidence? No. Jesus is sovereign. When Paul arrived on the scene in Corinth, he's all alone. But Jesus has coordinated all of these partnerships, new friends in the gospel. To work as partners for him. Why? Well, because Jesus is sovereign. Second thing I want you to see is he's sovereign over our preaching. Sovereign over our partnerships. He's sovereign over our preaching. I love the description uh, in this chapter for Paul's preaching. It's an apologetic evangelism. So he's, he's reasoning with them and then he's trying to persuade them to believe. That's in verse four. It's a good reminder that when we share the gospel with people, our objective is not just to show them what we know. Our objective is to persuade them to trust in Christ, to show them who we know and how wonderful he is and why he's the one they really want anyway. That's the objective of evangelism is to point people to Christ and try to persuade them to trust in him. So I imagine Paul used the scriptures to point to Christ. That's his forte. He knows the word. So I imagine he used the scriptures. I, probably he told his own story. Guys, I was like persecuting Christians. I was on the way to Damascus to drag them off. I was going to get them. And then Jesus shows up himself, knocks me off my horse. I can't see a thing. It's so bright. He calls me out of being a persecutor and into being a preacher. I imagine he shares his story with them. They just shrug their shoulder. I don't know about that, Paul. I imagine he says, guys, you've got to know this Jesus. There's no one like him. He's he's unique. He's the only one. He's the only one who can save. All the scriptures have been pointing to Jesus. He's the only one who could save you. Hard as he may try at the end of the day, Paul is not in control of the results. Neither are we. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus. We, we till the soil by loving well. We tell people about Christ and who he is. We preach the gospel. We water that seed. And then we stand back and just trust the results to God. He is in control. So in this text, we see both rejection and revival. Let's talk about those for a moment. Why was Paul rejected? Well, it wasn't a geography problem, right? I mean, he preached in the synagogue and he walked next door and preached again and they all believed. So it wasn't a location issue. It wasn't that the acoustics and the lighting in the synagogue weren't good. It wasn't that uh, the live stream was glitchy. It wasn't any of those things. It wasn't the content of his message. He preached the same message from TJ's front porch. And many believed. Paul preached this gospel with all his heart. He was still rejected. So how does he deal with that? How does does Paul come to grips with the idea that people are rejecting him? Because he knows Jesus is sovereign. So look how he responds to rejection. He does two things in response to rejection. He shook the dust off his garments. You say, what's that about? 
Well, in this culture, they knew exactly what it was about. Here's what it was. When a Jew was traveling through the countryside and he would come through a Gentile territory, as he's leaving the Gentile territory and entering back into Jewish lands, he would shake the dust from his sandals and the dust from his cloak and his clothing, as if to say, not even the Gentile dust is worthy to be in Jewish land. It was a, it was a motion of judgment. You're not worthy to come into God's presence. And ironically, now Paul is flipping the script on these Jews and he says to them, you're not worthy to be in God's presence. He has come to you in grace and mercy and you have rejected him. And so now he will reject you. And he shakes the dust off. This is a message of judgment. It's not a pleasant one. And secondly, he references uh, Ezekiel, the prophet from chapter three. And again, in chapter 33, he says, your blood is on your own head. I'm innocent. That's a direct reference to the watchman on the wall. And if you don't know the, the history, the Jewish cities would have these huge walls and they'd have watchmen posted on the walls. And when enemies were coming, the watchmen were responsible to blow the trumpet, to sound the alarm, to warn the people. Trouble's coming, trouble's coming. They, the watchman had the responsibility of sounding the alarm. And in Ezekiel 3, and again in chapter 33, it says that if he sounds the alarm and the people heed his word, all is well. But if he sounds the alarm and the people don't heed his word, then their blood is on their own. And so Paul is re referencing that and what he's saying is, I'm the watchman and I'm sounding the alarm and you're not listening. The judgment you face is on your own head. I'm innocent of your blood. And we take from that a couple of things, at least we should take that Paul felt some responsibility for his brethren. We know he did. Romans 10 and 11, he says he would give up his own salvation if they would just believe. So he sensed a sense of responsibility. I wonder if we bear that kind of burden. I wonder if you think of yourself as a watchman on the wall. If you don't, here's an evidence. You never sound the alarm. If you think of yourself as a watchman on the wall, you sound the alarm. You give warning. You call people to trust in Christ. So the preached gospel was rejected by them. But it wasn't rejected everywhere. Beautifully, under the sovereign Jesus, revival breaks out right next door. Crispus and his family, many of the Corinthians were believed and were baptized into the body of Christ. Wow, this is this is powerful stuff. We can trust Christ. Paul is showing us you can trust Christ when you preach the gospel faithfully, no matter what the outcome. God is working even when you can't see it. We sung that this morning, right? Even when I don't see it, God is working. Maybe you've been praying for a friend to surrender his life to the Lord. Trust in Jesus. He's sovereign over our preaching. We can trust him in both rejection and revival. But let's be faithful to preach the word. Thirdly, he is sovereign to save his people. 
The verses we'll zone in on now are verses 9 and 10. It's these verses from which the whole idea, the, the whole theme of the sovereignty of Christ surfaces in a very clear way. So Paul usually is pretty quick to move from one place to the next. Uh, if he thinks that the Lord is done with him in a certain city or maybe uh, the people get hostile or violent towards him, uh, he'll, he'll be rushed off and go to a new place. And maybe that was the case here. We, we know in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, Paul actually says he came to them in weakness and with much fear. So we know he was, he's afraid. Like there was opposition. He'd been beaten. He'd been hurt. He'd been wounded many times up to this point. And he's maybe fearful that that's about to happen again. But in Corinth, Jesus himself comes to him again in a dream or a vision. So look at verses 9 and 10. Listen to what Jesus says. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. But go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, what is Jesus saying right there? He is very clearly telling the Apostle Paul to continue preaching because there are yet some who will believe. And Jesus is saying, he's already saying, these are my people. I have many here who are my people. Preach the gospel. I'll protect you. Don't be afraid. Preach the truth. Keep on speaking. And these are my people. For I have many people who are here. So in this vision, Jesus commands Paul to keep preaching. And the reason is, for I have many people. This is one of the clearest places in Scripture where we see that Jesus not only knows who will believe, but he is acting to ensure that they hear the gospel. Listen to what, what Jesus is doing. He's stopping Paul from leaving town. He's like, look, don't be afraid. You keep preaching. Because there are many people here who will believe they're my people. Jesus is actively involved in his gospel mission. And he is sovereign over saving his people. This is a beautifully mysterious truth. I won't, I won't uh, pretend to believe or suggest that I understand all of this. I just know what the word says. But I want to celebrate together with you the beauty of this reality. We are not deists. Do you know what I mean when I say the word deist? A deist is a person who believes there is a God, but that he just sort of set the world in motion and left it on its own. That's not the God of the Bible. He is, as we see, interrupting people's sleep with dreams and visions to say, don't leave town. Don't be afraid. In fact, I'm not going to let anybody hurt you for this one time. Oh, for this one little bit in Corinth, no one can lay a hand on you. And I want you to keep preaching because I still have people here. Do not leave. Our God did not set the world in motion and stand back and go, let's just see what happens. That's deism. We're not deists. We believe in a sovereign God who is intricately involved in our lives. The Bible reveals about the one true God that he is so involved, more involved than you would even like to believe. 
Proverbs 16, 13 says that he is sovereign even over the rolling of the dice. Proverbs 21, 1 says that he's sovereign over the heart of a king. He steers it like rivers of water in his hand. Ephesians 1.11, probably the most sweeping statement about the sovereignty of our God, it says that he is working all things according to the counsel of his own will. This is broad, and I could give you 14 more verses, but we don't have time. God is so sovereign, he's in control of rolling dice. He's in control of the rulings of a president or a king. He's in control of all things. Now, in this vision, Jesus calms the fears of his servant by comforting him with promises. Listen to him. Here they are. The promise of his presence. For I am with you, Paul. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you. Somebody needs to hold on to that. You're not alone. Jesus is with you. He says, you're not alone. And he says to Paul, I'm going to protect you. So the promise of the presence, promise of protection, I'm going to keep you safe. Now, we, we can't take this promise and directly apply it to our lives because it, it was for a time and for a place and for a person. But we can take the general promise of God's protection, that he's working all things for our good, right? So we can trust in God's protective hand over us. And then thirdly, we see the promise of his Providence, And that's the big one that we're holding on to is that he is sovereignly caring for the souls of men. He's working providentially to save some through the preaching of the gospel. So if you're not a believer today and you're in the house or you're listening online, and you're not a follower of Jesus. This Jesus is gracious and sovereign and kind enough to let you hear his gospel today. Like you're hearing the message that could save you right now. And here it is. Jesus suffered in your place. He bore your sin and died a brutal death so that you wouldn't have to suffer the wrath of God. He's done all that's needed to set you free from the burden, the guilt of your sin. And he's welcoming you into a real relationship with your creator, God. The beauty of the gospel is not just what we get from Jesus. It's that we get Jesus. You get a relationship with God. That's salvation. And God is gracious enough to you in this moment to share that truth with you. And probably Jesus has been working the events and the people of your life to get you right here, right now. Because he's just that sovereign. So if you see him and hear the truth about him, repent of your sin, trust in him, be baptized in his name. Jesus is sovereign to save. Don't wait for a better opportunity. Give your life to Christ today. Two more quickly, very quickly. Fourth, he is sovereign over our protection. I've already mentioned this, but I'll just say quickly, we see that Jesus promised Paul protection and he granted it even before Paul could even open his mouth. Paul's standing on trial before Galileo. He starts to defend himself. And Galileo's like, eh, this, this whole thing's a hoax. Y'all just need to go on. Just go on. I'm not going to deal with this matter. And the Lord sovereignly works in a way to use 
a, a government official to provide protection over his servant. This is beautiful. King Jesus, as we said, holds the heart of kings in his hands like the streams of water. And he turns them however he wishes. And in this moment, he chose to turn the, the, the heart of Galileo to set Paul free. So Jesus is sovereign over our protection. Do you think he can't do that with you? That leads us to this last one. He is sovereign over our plans. Did you notice that when Paul made a quick visit through Ephesus, he has an opportunity to stay and, and he will come back there eventually, but it's just a very quick pass through. He does some teaching. And as he teaches in the synagogue, they say, hey, we want you to stay. Would you just stay with us for a while? Paul's like, no. It's funny to me. I don't know. He just declines. And you're like, Paul, they kind of love you like everybody else hates you. They love you. Just stay, man. Stay and preach. And then he gives this explanation. I will return to you if God wills. In verse 21. What had Paul learned? He has learned who's in control. (laughs) He's learned who's in control. Have you learned it? Have you learned that? I mean, do you just plan your life and do whatever you want to do, regardless of whatever God wants in your life? I mean, do you just go, eh, you know, I think I'll just do this. James 4 says that's foolish for a believer. Look at what the scripture says. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Listen to this. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist or a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Now listen to this. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Paul is saying exactly that. He says, I'll come back and see you if the Lord wills. It's this posture of subjection to the will of an almighty God who we have come to know and believe is sovereign over all things. And so we never want to take a step outside or take, get off the track or out of, out of bounds. We want to, I want to walk in His will. And so I just posture myself in continual humility before this sovereign King to say, Lord, if you will, I'm there. If you don't will, I'm not there. Now, I don't know if you caught it or not, but there's... A little detail here in John 4 that's kind of a big deal. If the Lord wills, we will live. This is ultimate, right? You won't live a second longer than God wills for you to live. And you won't die a second sooner than God wills for you to die. You say, that's harsh. No, it's comforting. And it's incredibly comforting if you've lost a loved one. You say, well, how is it comforting if God wills that? Because you are of more value to Him than all of His creation. And He is not only sovereign, but He is infinitely good. And all that He does is for your good and His glory. I think about what Jesus taught in Matthew 10. He says... Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not even one of them falls in the forest apart from God. 
He says, do not fear the ones who can kill the body and not the soul. Don't you know that the hairs of your head are numbered? If God cares so much for birds that not one of them dies apart from his willing it, how much more so does he care for you? This is such comforting, calming reality. It draws us back to why Jesus started this dream with Paul by saying, do not fear. Don't fear, Paul. If the Lord wills, you'll live and do this or that. And in this moment, the Lord revealed that to him to say, you're going to live. I'm going to protect you. And I have people here who are going to believe through your preaching. So church, do not fear. Do not fear. There is no benefit to worry. God is in control and you are not, right? Let me tell you this. You can either have peace or you can have control, but you cannot have both. If you strive for control, you will have anxiety. You will have fear. Because you are seeking to take the place of Almighty God. He alone is in control. So I encourage you, release your need for control. Release it. And rest in His sovereign good care. Boldly, then boldly walk in faithful obedience to Jesus. Keep on speaking the truth. Keep on preaching and praying for the salvation of your friends, knowing that Jesus is sovereignly saving people. You can trust that God will work good from your efforts and your trust in him. The proverb is true. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Jesus is Sovereign, And that's good news, church. If you're not a follower of Jesus, he is the best man I've ever known. And he is the only one who can save you. Church, family that I've grown to love, we can trust our king. We can trust him. Let's pray.